Welcome to the Share Life Podcast with Jason Scott Montoya, where we explore stories and systems to live better and work smarter. Welcome to another episode of the Share Life Podcast. And this discussion, I'm speaking with David Coises. David, say hello. Hello, everybody. Uh, David is the author of Political Visions and Illusions, a survey and Christian critique of contemporary ideologies. David holds a PhD in government and international studies from the University of Notre Dame, taught undergraduate political science for 30 years. Uh, David, in this particular book, argues that what we believe about politics matters. In a unique and overarching way, David synthesizes the ideologies and what he calls the idolatries of liberalism, conservatism, nationalism, democratism, socialism, into a larger meta-story. He explains these ideologies' points of view where they aim to provide a redemptive human story and how their redemptive story fails to recognize the deeper problem and achieve their particular political ambitions. The book is a wonderful framework for navigating politics while also transcending the emotional pull that comes in political crises or deeply rooted political belief-based discussions. We're often driven by these ideologies without even recognizing how they're fueling our point of view and behavior. So let's jump right in, David. Um, as a way to explain some of the ideologies you treat in the book and present relevant applications, would you survey for us the issue of uh, college education, its costs, and most uh, prominently, the recent student loan forgiveness program that was rolled out by the Biden administration, as well as its criticisms? Hopefully, you can help us understand what these uh, ideologies are and how they might look at a particular topic like this from different uh, different points of view, and then also how perhaps we can sort of transcend any particular ideology and look at it in a more complete way. So take us yes. from there. <laughs> yes, certainly. I guess, I guess where I would want to start with that is that uh, I think this that particular issue needs to be put into the larger uh, context of education in general. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you if you know, every every civilization uh, educates its children and, and its young people in some way, you know, yeah. it might not it might not necessarily be formal schooling in the way that we know it in um, North America, uh, in the Western world in general. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I think my, my my late father uh, apprenticed to a blacksmith in his village in Cyprus. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. I'm probably the only one alive who can say, <laughs> say that, you know, of, uh, of his, his father. My, my, I'm only two generations removed from arranged marriage as well. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, so, but, so, you know, their, their uh, education itself, I think we, we need to, to look at as being um, uh, as being part of a much larger framework yeah. uh, that, um, uh, that is conditioned by the assumptions of, of particular civilizations. And these civilizations, you know, as as Samuel Huntington pointed out, are are rooted in in um, in in um, uh, very basic religious beliefs that, that condition the way that we uh, that we approach these matters. So I I think when when we're speaking of university education, I think we need to be aware that it's it's part of something much larger than yeah. than just universities. So you know, and of course, uh, the economic side of it is going to is going to come into it as well. But I think that's um, that's a secondary consideration. Um, you know, who, who is ultimately responsible for education? Mm -hmm. um, going back to the ancient Greeks, there is an assumption that, that education belongs to the polis, uh, to the city. And yeah. that somehow the government is responsible for ensuring 
that citizens are educa- educated in in the virtues, to use this Aristotelian language. And was that in, yeah. a, in a, the polis was is responsible in an exclusive sense or in a uh, a one role among many? Well, that's a, that's a good question because I think um, you know I I think from from the perspective of of Plato and Aristotle, they would have seen the city as being a, a rather um, totalistic community. I, I hesitate yeah. to use the word totalitarian because that has certain connotations yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. the, for the 20th century. You know. um, but the uh, um, uh, you know un, but parents were educating their children at that at that time. Uh, you know, Plato and Aristotle both. Uh, were involved in educating young people. Uh, tradition says that Aristotle educated the young Alexander, who would go on to um, of Macedon, who would go on to conquer the known world as far as um, what, what what we now know as Pakistan. Yeah. Um, you know. So so when we look at education, we need to be aware of that, and that that education is also rooted in in certain worldviews. Uh, you know. So is education this is something which is is ultimately religiously neutral? This is simply a matter of handing on tech, technical capacities from one generation to the next. Well, that's part of it, but I don't think that's the that that's the whole of it. So when we look at, at something like university education, um, I think we, we need to be aware of uh, of the diversity of um, of educational um, settings that we find in a mature, differentiated society, such as we have here in, in the United States and Canada. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm just, I have to tell your audience that I'm just getting over COVID, so I have a bit of a residual <laughs> residual cough. So if you'll yeah, yeah. pardon me for just a moment. Yeah. So depending on your view of education or where you think it fits into the larger society, um, you know that's going to condition the way that you would approach the subject of of, of funding education. Um, yeah. If um, if if you look at at universities as being uh, um, arms of the government, then you're going to to see that that. Um, you're going to see that tax dollars should be used exclusively for universities that are that are arms of the government. Yeah, um, I, I taught for 30 years at an independent Christian university here in uh, in Hamilton, uh, but we we have a, um, a neighboring university which is a, a provincial university. Uh, it used yeah. to be a Baptist university prior to 1957, but mm-hmm. uh, but then it became a provincial university and it, it gets some government funding. So the, the the issue of of funding is going to be very important. If you are, for example, a, a liberal, um, you know, if you adhere to liberal ideology, then you're going to look at education as as a matter of uh, primarily of trying to um, inculcate certain probably technical skills within uh, within the uh, uh, within the students, uh, so that they can be good participatory members of yeah. the larger society and when you and say technical the, do you mean yeah. uh does, does that imply just sort of a, a knowledge or a, an ability standpoint as opposed to the development of character in those yes exactly that's right yeah so so at one time you know and, and this again goes back to plato and aristotle there was a notion that education is there to develop character amongst the amongst the young you know and as uh plato in his republic uh you know set up this elaborate um, curriculum, you know, in which you would be censoring the poets, you know, the whole, mm-hmm. presumably the Homeric uh, um, epics and so forth, to try to uh, build courage in the mm-hmm. in the in, in the guardian class and so forth. And Aristotle had this notion of virtue as being necessary mm-hmm. to um, the functioning of a polis of a of, of one of these city states, such as Athens, and uh, and so education was to be an arm of the city 
that was supposed to educate, you know, not mass education in the way that we think of it now, but at least those people who had the virtues to be to be citizens of their particular um, their particular yeah. cities. So why would the lib from an, the liberal ideology's point of view, um, why would they be more interested in the technical and less interested in the character development? Yeah, and, and that's probably a more recent development because I think if you would go back to somebody like um, like John Locke and some of the early liberals, they would have seen that the building of character was a very significant thing. But as liberalism has developed over the over the centuries, especially I would say in the last sixty years, just just in my lifetime. Um, there has been a focus on the, um, on what we might call the expansive self, on yeah. the um, um, on the uh, um, uh, the um, uh, there's a, there, there's this notion that that somehow our desires are to be released and we are supposed to try to seek our desires as best we can. Yeah. So now we hear people telling young people, you know, oh, follow your dreams, follow your dreams, you know, as as if that's somehow supremely wise <laughs> advice. Uh, you know, I mean, that's all well and good that people are going to pursue their interests, to be sure. But, um, you know, from our generations, previous generations, uh, they would have had no sense that their young people would be following that would be following their own dreams because uh, um, the um, um, lines are pretty much set. You know, if you if you were if your father was a blacksmith and you would you would become a blacksmith too yeah you know if your father was a tailor or a cobbler you would become a tailor or a cobbler as well but now there's this idea that somehow we want to to realize ourselves we want to authenticate ourselves and i think that that's motivating us so you know how do we do that well there are certain techniques that we need to acquire so that we can authenticate ourselves mm. and so the building of characters is very much less significant mm. So there's almost, I guess, an implication that that there's no need for that character development, right? I think so. Yes. Yeah. I think so. Yes. Yes. Or maybe even the um, the assumption that there is such a thing as a character, a normative character, to which uh, human beings, uh, for which human beings ought to strive, that's come to be seen as a kind of uh, of a power play. Um, on the part of, of of the powerful to try to get us yeah. in their grips. And that's where a certain kind of um, uh, a crude sort of, of Marxism has come down into our um, into our present day as well. Yeah. Well, I, I guess yeah. part of that is sort of this idea that um, we're, de I, I would argue from a standpoint of that we are dependent creatures. We are dependent on others. Whereas the, um, the, the liberal might say that I'm independent of others. Yes. And so for them to teach me character is to, uh, is to potentially oppress me, right? I think so, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So how would, how would the liberal ideology look at something like uh, borrowing money for education and then also right. the forgiveness of that education through um, the distribution of, of essentially having the government pay it? through the taxpayers right. it's uh it, different liberals will tell you different things yeah so uh, in in my political visions and illusions I, I trace the development of liberalism through five stages so the the first being the the um the hobbesian commonwealth the second being the um the, the night watchman state um the third being what I, what i have called the regulatory state the fourth being the equal opportunity state uh, and then the fifth being the choice enhancement state. And I think since about 1960, this is the stage that we're in at the present time, that some, somehow government intervenes to enhance 
our choices so that we have all of these options amongst which we can choose. Now, if you're, if you're a liberal who, who um, adheres to one of the earlier stages of that particular ideology, you're more likely to say that, um, that individuals should take responsibility for themselves. They should take responsibility for their own education. If you're a late liberal, maybe a choice enhancement liberal or, a, or an equal opportunity liberal, you're going to say, well, government needs to intervene to try to equalize the playing field so that everybody has similar options in front of them. Mm -hmm. And as to whether, um, you know, whether that has to do with student loans, whether the, the forgiveness of loans might come in in some way, different liberals are going to tell you different things. Yeah. And so how do you reconcile those differences um, when when a, one liberal says one thing and another liberal says another? And, and you're essentially making the argument that they're the same. They're just different flavors of the same ice cream. <laughs> yeah. The, the, well, well, you know, I, I'm tempted to say, well, get your act together. But of course, <laughs> in, in every political ideology, you're going to see that there's there's a tension at the very heart of it. Uh, a tension. There's going to be an inconsistency. And that will tend to drive the adherence of a single ideology apart into different camps. Yeah. So in the Western world, I think particularly in, in um, the United States and Canada, uh, we will see that, um, uh, that liberalism uh, frames the larger debate. I think this is really um, uh, obvious in the, in the 2000 presidential debates between um, George W. Bush and Al Gore. They were both, um, uh, both untried. They were both running for the presidency, taking Bill Clinton's place. And uh, at, there was, um, I can't remember whether all the debates were like this, but there was one in which the moderator was sitting at a table and they were, they were sitting at the same table on either side facing, facing the audience. And more often than not, they would say, well, I agree with you, but I think we need to do it in this way. And that's where we saw that, that in many respects, their assumptions were the same between uh, yeah. Bush and Gore. Their assumptions were the same. They differed as to how to interpret those and, and, mm. and which party would be the, the, the better party at implementing those, uh, those, those principles. Now, there's a, a very much more um, polarization than there was 20 years ago, sad to say. But it's not a, a, they're not polarized around deep principles. Yeah. Uh, you know, they distrust each other, but 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 the, the framework is still largely a liberal framework. And how are we going to get to, to these goals of liberating the individual? Yeah, and that's what they differ differ on. And they've come to distrust each other as well. Mm. So let's let's take another one of the ideologies. We won't have time to go into all of them. But what would be another one to kind of look through the lens? I mean, you kind of mentioned a little bit about like traditionalism and conservatism, some history in terms of how they see education. But what would be whether that one or one of the others? that um, has a distinct way of looking at education and both how it's paid for and, and how student loans and forgiveness might play a part. Right, right. Well, um, one of the ideologies that I treat in my, uh, in my book, I've labeled democratism. Democratism is a, I don't think I've invented the word, but if you try to um, put it in your spell checks, the spell check won't recognize it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but it's, uh, I think in the first edition of Political Visions and Illusions that came out in 2003, I called it democracy as an ideology or democracy as creed. But then in order to make it parallel with liberalism, with all of these other yeah. isms, I came up with democratism. You know, if you if you are, are a really a believer in um, the goodness, uh, maybe the holiness of democracy, then you are going to look at education as, as a matter of, of uh, raising up democratic citizens that will be able to um, um, 
exercise the democratic responsibilities. And so that means that then very likely government is going to be a, a major role player in ensuring that, uh, that, that young people are educated for citizenship. So how would a, a someone who's kind of in, enthralled by democracy, democratism, how would they see the difference between um, or the assumption that should everyone go to college or not? And I, I could see quickly, you know, how that would sort of there, there probably is an underlying tension there that's well, everyone should share the cost because it's a democracy type of uh, mentality, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think and that would get us um, closer, I think, into socialism, because socialism, you're going to find that that those people who follow socialism will make an even stronger case for uh, for pooling costs and mm -hmm. evening out the costs as much as much as possible, not only for education, but for a whole variety of um, of uh, um, a whole a whole variety of uh, of of goods that that societies might value. So you know, not just education, but uh, but um, um, you know, arguably, maybe even in the the well, the distribution of medical care, for example. In Canada, we have universal medical care um, on a province by province basis, to be sure, but that's different from the United States at, at the present time. Uh, the um, um, the founder of Medi Medicare in Canada was a man by the name of Tommy Douglas. Um, he was the the premier of Saskatchewan for many years. He was the first national leader of the New Democratic Party. And that's basically Canada's Democratic Socialist Party. And if you're a, um, if you're an adherent of that, of that party, you are going to want uh, as much as possible for people to pool costs. And that means that basically government uh, would take the initiative in encouraging, well, mandating people uh, to pool costs in, for a, in a variety of areas. Yeah. So when this when this student forgiveness program is is unrolled and un, uh, revealed, we get all these different responses from all these different groups. And so, how do you make sense of that through this ideological lens? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think those people who are the old fashioned type of liberals are are going to be um, less enthralled with this notion of of the forgiveness of of student debt. Um, you know, and and there is something to that. Um, it's not clear, you know, forgiveness of debt. Um, uh, uh, the money has to come from somewhere. Yeah, and I think there's something that probably the the old fashioned, you know, the oldest style liberals probably are, are have have made a point. You know, where yeah. is the money going to come from? It isn't as though the banks are forgiving the debts. If they did, then it would come out of the um, out of presumably out of the out of the depositors um yeah. bank books you know so it's uh but but this time it seems as though it's going to come out of tax dollars um you know so that's that's going to it's not clear to the the mass of citizenry that this is going to be of benefit for everybody is it mm -hmm. is it going to to uh, benefit only those who are university educated mm -hmm. what about those people who have entered a trade uh, become electrician or a, or a plumber or something along those lines, you know. My my uh, my late grandfather, maternal grandfather, was a uh, was an automobile. worked on an automobile assembly line in Pontiac, Michigan. Yeah. You know, and, I, and that was one of the skilled trades, as it were. And I, he was very proud of his trade. Big union man. Uh, you know, and, and and what about you know uh, what about people like that? What are they going to think about about the forgiveness of of student loans? So you know, if it, uh, one type of liberal would say. Um, 
yeah, let's be careful about this, you know, because it's not really forgiveness because the money is going to come from somewhere. Yeah. 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 So let's kind of shift gears. And, and I, I think one of the things, the critique that you're making in the book is, is to imply that these ideologies, which you kind of, you, um, from a Christian's point of view, say that by placing them at, as superior, they become an idolatry. Um, but the argument is that they they do tell us some part of the story, but they're incomplete. That's right. So how would we look at this yeah. particular issue or, or any issue at, at, for that matter yeah. in a non-ideological way um, that also is practical in the sense that we're also considering these different facets that people are either their grievances, concerns, um, and, and, and questions about these particular complex problems and solutions? Right, right, right. Well, you have to do it with with a great deal of care, yeah. you know. And 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 one of the things that that I think is true of the ideologies that I treat in my book, um, and and even ones that I don't treat in my book, you know, I don't I don't treat anarchism, I don't treat syndicalism. I mentioned fascism, although that's not a major focus of, yeah. of the book, is that they come up with with two easy solutions. Mm. They come up with two easy solutions. You know, they they tend to throw slogans. At, um, at at problems, whereas in the real world, the idea of um, of, uh, of of doing justice in the real world in a complex, differentiated society means that that those who are responsible for seeing that justice is done, public justice within the uh, within the larger society, um, they have to weigh very carefully uh, the, the um, you know the different interests in the balance. So if, yeah. if we're thinking about an interest like like forgiveness of student loans, we need to be you know don't say well uh, you know we want to free these um, the the people who are in debt we want to free them from their debts and that's a good okay well maybe it is but there are other considerations that need to be weighed in the balance as well you know has the Biden administration weighed these other considerations in the balance you know who is doing the actual forgiving is it the the banks is it the government is it the taxpayers. Uh, you know, and and uh, are all are these are different considerations being taken into account before this decision has been made? And mm-hmm. I think there may be reason to doubt that that's that that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess how would you um, like? I I think part of what I see is that there are these overly simplistic uh, explanations or solutions proposed. And that our society is is vastly complex, overly complex, um, more complex than any of us, most individuals can really comprehend. And so how do you, how do we navigate that complexity um, in a wise way? Well, I think, I think we need to, um, to begin by um, listening to as, as many voices as we possibly can. Yeah. That's why I think, uh, you know, this is, this is where the whole, uh, notion of politics comes in um you know the, the politics it, a lot a lot of politics is not a matter of of talking and making your opinion known but of sitting down and hearing people out for a bill is even introduced into into congress or into the house of commons for example here in, in canada uh you know there the um uh, there there may be hearings that are held on on uh on a particular proposal, on a particular policy, mm-hmm. and uh, and different interest groups will be summoned to to have their say on this particular issue, and that's all received as information by the decision makers. They have to weigh all of that. Of course, there there are um, interests are going to clash. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Interests are going to clash, not because people are evil necessarily, but because people have have limited vision. 
you know, you can only see so far on either side of you. Um, you know, from my basement office here, um, there's there are a lot of things I can't see in the house. I don't know exactly what my wife is doing. I, I'm not sure what my daughter is doing or what our neighbors are doing. You know, so 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 you have to listen to people. You have to be willing to 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 hear people, uh, representatives of different interests. This this is why we have elections, so that um, so that citizens can have their voices heard at, at at that very basic level. But even after elections. Uh, when it comes time to to concrete policy making, um, different groups, different interests have to be heard, and that's all part of, all part of the process of doing justice. Yeah. Now, if you're in the throes of a particular ideology, you may uh, find yourself thinking, "Ah, this is what justice <laughs> requires. This is what we're going to do, come hell or high water." You know, and you're not going to listen to people. You're going to say, "Well, this is justice. This is the just thing to do." Yeah. And and too often, I think the people who style themselves um, I hesitate to use this this term, but social justice warriors, yeah, you know, are are, are too too willing. To, they they too easily jump to conclusions. Mm -hmm. They 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 um um they uh, they rush to judgment. Yeah, and in so doing, they they run the grave risk of miscarrying justice. Yeah, 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 and I can you know I can relate to that even personally. Just um you know, feeling overwhelmed by a particular problem and wanting to act and sometimes recognizing in that retrospect that how I act actually caused, made the problem worse, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and of course, that's a big risk with any any government actor. You yeah. know, there, there's a real risk of making of making problems worse. Yeah, and, and the conflict is not just between the different ideologies, but one of the things that stuck out in the book for me was how you sort of framed each ideology as a spectrum being uh, on one side conservative and another side progressive. So you have oh, conservative yeah. liberals and you have progressive liberals, <clears throat> conservative nationalists and progressive nationalists. So explain uh, to us <laughs> what, what that's going on there and, and how that works. Because I feel like that was a hugely clarifying yeah. uh, framework for me to sort of look at things. Right. I think it was, um, I'm going to quote from my, from my book, but I'm also going to quote from Alistair McIntyre, um, whom I quote in, in the book, who said that, that the, the main um debates today take place between conservative liberals and um uh, what did he say progressive liberals and maybe radical liberals i can't remember exactly the the terms that he uses but there were three categories but they all fall within that larger liberal framework in, in, in much of what goes by the conservative label in the united states and and since the beginning of the century increasingly in canada as well really is a kind of old-fashioned liberalism yeah. So a lot of uh, of what we see, uh, you know, I've, I'm I'm old enough to remember, um, uh, oh, I guess Barry Goldwater when he ran for the presidency in 1964. You know, I, I remember my my parents. Um, you know, they generally voted Republican, but they didn't like him. You know, and I remember yeah. them getting into an argument as to as to what to do about this Goldwater character. You know, that neither yeah. like, but he was much more of a kind of libertarian. Um, type of a type of a figure, a, a polarizing figure in many in many respects. You know, which Eisenhower did not be. Eisenhower was very much a consensus type of a of a figure in the 1950s. You know, and um, yeah. um but uh, uh, but a lot of what what goes by the conservative label in the United States is really a kind of of old fashioned liberalism. Yeah, and and there are people who have tried to define conservatism, have tried to put substance within a conservative vision. Um, I just recently um, uh, published a review of a book by Yoram Hazoni, an American-Israeli um, uh, political philosopher, and it's called Conservatism, A Rediscovery. Delightful book, a wonderful book. 
in yeah. many respects, but but I, I I wasn't entirely convinced by his effort to put substance, you know, <laughs> principles within conservatism because conservatism um, is too it's too um, um, it, it's it's it, it, it's too flexible. Yeah. Um, there it, it it's it's too capacious. It it, it includes too much yeah. to be able to find it'll. Um, um, I mean, you said in the book, you know, you have yeah. to ask yourself, what are you trying to conserve? Exactly. That's right. And yeah. I think a lot of conservatism that I just after reading your book, I kind of started to think about it. I think it may be more often cons labeled as like traditionalism in a way. Yeah, that's right. And, and traditionalism, you know, at least you know what you're conserving. You know, yeah. it's a tradition. And whose tradition? Well, yeah. it's going to be our tradition. Yeah. You know, and I, uh, you're not going to get an American cons conservative trying to defend 19th century Russian autocracy, you know, yeah. Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodoxy and nationality, you know, which was, yeah. was Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas, the first <laughs> um, slogan, you know, you're not going to get American conservatives doing that. But, but it not... does, it does seem to create like these weird, like Frankenstein monsters, because what yeah. whatever is being conserved is usually a hodgepodge of different traditions. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's right. Yeah, And they're not necessarily coherent yeah. with each other either. <laughs> no, that's in fact, right. They're yeah. at odds in a lot of cases. They are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, Canada, you know, we have uh, in Canada, we just we just laid to rest our queen, you yeah. know, and, and and honestly, I didn't think I would shed as many tears as I did. Mm. You know, my 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 wife and daughter were very moved by the by the memorial services that were held at St. Giles Cathedral and the Westminster yeah. Abbey, you know, in St. George's uh, Windsor, you know, very moved by by these, you know, and but but you won't see American conservatives saying we need to get a monarchy. You yeah. know, we need to restore the monarchy because that's simply not part of the American tradition. Yeah. Canada, yes, but not the United States. Yeah, at least in that form. Maybe there's hope for for an alternative variation. <laughs> but I, I think the other funny thing is that, um, you know, the whole idea that that we're talking about conservative and um, progressive liberals who would consider themselves as like the left and the right, but are actually mirrors of each other. It kind of, you know, it's interest. It's ironic that they have such uh, they can have such disdain for each other. Um so but in a way, it's 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 their own reflection in the mirror. Does that make sense? It is, yeah. And and I think it's also true that 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 intra-family squabbles can be worse. Yeah. You know, than 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 um, friends falling out with each other. Yeah. You know, so there's there's a sense in which you know your family, the members of your family, they're with you for life. You know, you can't get rid of them. Friends, yeah. you can presumably say, oh, you know, I. Um, and friends are falling out of friendship all the time. You know, family, it's, 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 it's more difficult. And I think that's one of the, one of the reasons why in the United States at the present time, much lesser extent in Canada, although I think there are some disquieting elements even here as well, but in the States, you have such a, um, such polarization, you know, so that, that it could break out in actual violence, um, yeah. almost two years ago, you know, just a the horrendous thing. Yeah. And I think there's there's something about like the the ideology having its logical conclusions that people don't follow to their to their place. I, I think uh, Frederick Nietzsche uh, Nietzsche kind of was trying to do that. Like, hey, I'm going to take these assumptions and take them to their end, and let's see where we go. That's right, and and I I will say that most uh, followers of ideologies are better than their ideologies. Mm -hmm. You know, so they they're not willing. To take the logic of their beliefs to to their to their full extent, 
Now, there are some people like like Hitler and Stalin and so forth, you know, that are willing to do that at the cost of scores yeah. of millions of lives. You know, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong was probably the worst mass murderer in history, yeah. um, just, just because there were more Chinese to kill off. You know, yeah. just, just again, ter- terrible thing. But but the vast majority of people, even people, Canadian socialists, you know, are not willing to take the logic of their socialist convictions to the to the full extent. So, you know, the, they're, they're willing to engage in a limited sort of reality check. Yeah. And so if their principles um, do not match the reality, they most people are willing to modify those principles. Yeah. If they recognize that that they're going to hurt people, if they try to implement them to the full yeah. extent. Which implies that they at least somewhat recognize that something has to be uh, superior to these things in order to properly order them, right? That's right. Yeah, that's something that Abraham Kuyper called common grace. Yeah. God's common grace. You know, that that um, that um, he, he makes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Yeah. You know, even those people who are not believers benefit from his grace in this in the in a certain minimal sense. That we all share God's creation. Yeah. So I want to kind of go a little deeper. So we've talked about like these ideologies and how it affects education and student loans and and that issue. But if we go deeper, I, I want to talk about the really the foundation of America, particularly United States of America. So you mentioned Alistair McIntyre. So he called the Enlightenment a failed project. Um, but it's also a project that gave birth to the ideology of liberalism in many ways. So I'm curious, you know, what is your thought about America's founding um, and maybe the Western countries more broadly? Um, how how much are they based on some of these flawed liberal assumptions and ideologies? Um, can these be rectified? You know, what is at the end of the book, you explore the idea of pluriformity. Um, how does that tie into this? And, and how would you differentiate pluriformity from liberal uh, pluralism? A lot to throw at you so yeah well let's start with <laughs> the first one if you can repeat the first one again because the question yeah just so is america or more broadly the western countries are they yeah, founded so, okay. on flawed assumptions and ideologies which need <clears throat> um, to be rectified that's right and I, I would say um yes and no yeah uh you know so so there are some people that say well the american founding was was flawed and therefore we have to scrap the whole thing and start over. At least that seems to be the implication that, that we have from it. I would say the American founding was flawed um, in many respects, <laughs> but you know, it's that's not the only the only element. So you know, if you think about about the why Americans were fighting in the um, you know, it, it's called the American Revolution, but it, it really was the the American War for Independence. That's really what it was. You know, it wasn't a revolution in the same sense as the French Revolution was a few years later. Yeah. You know, it wasn't there was no attempt to try to to rebuild society upon rational principles and get rid of all of the traditions of the past. You know, that wasn't part of the American um, effort. What, what, what happened in the United States is that really right up until, until 1776, Americans, um, um, you know, they were willing to, to stick with the king. Uh, and, and, and their beef was really with the British Parliament, which they saw as, as interfering in, in colonial affairs. They were willing to recognize the king but in the same way that, you know, in Canada, we recognize the Queen, but yeah. we don't recognize the British Parliament. We have our own yeah. Parliament here in, in Canada. You know, so that's been the case since 1931 with the Statute of Westminster, which created the Commonwealth of Nations. Yeah. You know, well, Americans, you know, if they can be faulted for anything, it's for the assumption that the Commonwealth <laughs> of, of Nations already existed in the 18th century. You know, so they said, you know, we are we are independent. 
we are in uh, a personal union with Great Britain and Ireland and Hanover. You know, we recognize the same king, but the British Parliament doesn't have any 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 more business in our affairs than it does in the in, in the affairs of Hanover. Yeah, you know, which was which the the British king was also ruling at the at the time or reigning over. So, uh, so that's what uh, what Americans were were doing at the time. You know, you wouldn't have to be a, necessarily a, a a liberal or any kind of uh, you know an ideologue to recognize that uh, you know that Americans wanted to be in charge of their of their own affairs, and um, and they had been up until um, the Parliament decided they wanted to tax the the colonials to pay for the Seven Years' War. Mm. You know, so so, but you know, you can't deny the fact that the Declaration of Independence. You know, penned largely by Thomas Jefferson, and then of course it went to a committee, and the committee uh, <laughs> edited it, you know, and put it into its its final form. You know, um, um, Jefferson was very much influenced by John Locke, and he was one of the um, inventors of Anglo-Saxon liberalism. Uh, you know, the idea that um, that uh, um, you know, that that if a particular government that we set up a government, if it doesn't do what we want it to, then we have the the right to withdraw our consent. You know, he put it very much in Lockean language, although not Americans were necessarily thinking in Lockean language. Yeah. So, I mean, does that does that imply that there's some liberal base assumptions um, in some of those undergirding foundings that are actually leading us astray? Like, I think, like more specifically, like America is very autonomous as a country amongst the yeah. world, but we're also very autonomous individuals, and a lot of that seems that's to right. be the spirit of, of what it means to be American. But in some ways, that's uh, contradictory to to the type of hu- humans we are. Yeah, that oh, type yeah, of autonomy. It, it very much is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think I think that notion of autonomy of individual autonomy was present at the very beginning. You know, yeah. in, the, in the in the the end of the eighteenth century, it was there. Yeah. But there were always these these the, what we might call a communitarian spirit that that helped to mitigate that in large measure, you know. So if you think of of uh, people living in the small towns, barn raisings and so forth, you know, and the sorts yeah. of uh, you know quilting bees and people getting together to engage in all of these yeah. these shared activities, you know, things, the, the, things we the, would the, still see like in like the Amish community, like they oh still yeah, oh absolutely, yeah, yeah. that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that would knit people together. You yeah. know, but it seems as though over the last 250 years, it seems as though that individualism has just corroded many of those traditions, those, those yeah. more communitarian traditions. Until now, we have this uh, the, this notion of of um, expressive individualism is the way that Charles yeah. Taylor and others have put it. You know, that, that, I, that's, yeah. yeah, you know, you know, I have a right to express myself. I have a right to yeah. this. I have a right to that. And you know, too bad for anybody who gets in my way. Yeah, and yeah. and also the source of of where we derive those values as well. Um, I can't remember what he, he uses these two words, mm-hmm. but like whether the source is from within us or from an outside source and the shift in, in our culture where it's becoming more inside of ourselves that we find answers, right? <laughs> that's right, yeah. And I, I would say that's the Hobbesian element. Thomas Hobbes okay. was a 17th century political philosopher in England. He wrote this book called Leviathan and yeah. he was an individualist to the core. Yeah. You know, he believed that... that um, that, that everybody is basically out for him or herself. You yeah. Know, that that that, um, uh, that that everybody is motivated by the desire to survive, and, and everybody is in competition with everybody else. Yeah. And it seems as though that's the direction that we've moved um, today. You know that 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 um, you know uh, the founders in the 18th century believed that um, 
that there needed to be traditions that would hold the community together. The yeah. liberalism wasn't enough. Yeah. Uh, but now it's the it's as the liberalism has just expanded. It's taken over so much of the, the political landscape. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's almost as though we don't care for our neighbor anymore. Yeah. I don't, well, I don't I also, think that's literally true. I don't think that's yeah. literally true. But but you know, it, it's you can you can more easily hear people saying that than you could, for example, in my parents or grandparents' generation. Yeah. Although I think it kind of ties to what you said earlier about the kind of the reality check. I, I think historically, you we needed each other more, and now everything is with technology and and scale and um, scope. We kind of don't need our neighbors the way that we used to, and that reality shift it changes how we perceive ourselves and how we act. Right? It does, and it's interesting because I think about um. You know, I think about my my mother's generation. You know, growing up in the 1930s and the 40s, and they would, I think they would go to the movies about twice a week because there was always a new movie that was that was showing. And you know, this was before television. There was radio and so forth. But but people in the town they would go to the movies and they would see the movies together. Now, what is it? They're streaming movies on Netflix. You know, so now you don't even go to Blockbuster yeah. and rent a video and see your oh hi you know which video, yeah. <laughs> which video you're picking up now you're streaming everything on netflix or yeah. disney channel or one of these streaming services you don't you don't need to see anybody you know it's uh it's it, yeah it, it's not healthy and and the pandemic has only exacerbated it yeah. yeah and i think that's where um yeah those natural dynamics uh that helped us towards healthy con you know inter interrelational dynamics are, yeah. are shifting I, I also wonder if some of those are being driven by these these ideologies in the sense that, you know, the way that we're designing them, the way we do social media, yeah. it's it's designed with these ideologies underlying, whether we realize it or not, as a logical conclusion of the ideology. How, how yes. do you see that? Yeah, no, it's, it's true. There was a, um, uh, a Canadian philosopher by the name of George Parkman Grant. He died about, um, oh, oh goodness, I think it's almost 35 years ago now. I had the opportunity to meet him on two occasions in the late 1970s, and, and he taught at McMaster University here in Hamilton. And he wrote, um, he was very down on technology, probably excessively so, <laughs> but, he, but he wrote this, this essay, um, what is it, the computer does not determine how it will be used, you know, and he's trying to break through the idea. This is in sort of the, the infancy of, of personal computers, uh, trying to break through the idea that a computer is simply a kind of neutral tool that we can use for, for, um, for whatever we want um, to use it for. Now, there, there is, there's something to that, you know, because computers are subject to, to good use and also bad use as well. But in many respects, I think the, the, the way that, that we have things set up is fragmented. Yeah. And it's almost as though this liberal ideology, which has been in North America for a very long time, you know, it's, it's pushed us in the direction of, of, the, of, of fragmentation. So yeah. now you can see people that are, I don't know, maybe at the Christmas table, <laughs> looking at their phones, you know, yeah. not talking with each other, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's the stuff of cartoons and so forth. And I hope that doesn't literally happen, but um, um, yeah, there, there are dangers. Yeah. And, 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 with with that technological advance, we have to intentionally choose to do those things versus being more integrated into the way of life. And as humans, we're just some of us will maybe learn those lessons um, and enforce those things. But eventually, we sort of uh, fall into the currents that the dynamics create. Yes, no, it's quite true. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Um, so how how does plur uh, you talk about pluriformity as a sort of a mm. form of of society and and um, how do we how 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 much is America like that, and yeah. how could we become more effective in that approach? Yeah. Well, pluriformity is a. I, I don't think I invented the word, but but again, my spell checks don't know what to do with <laughs> it. Um, I have to you know add it manually to the to the uh, to the, the the database, I guess, of, of words. But um, uh, pluriformity simply means that that our societies um, are diverse. Uh, you know, not diverse in the way that. You know, we have these diversity, equity, inclusion type of type of things. You know, but but diverse in in the, the sort of social formations that that characterize our society. You know, so if you are a um, if you're a, a, a consistent liberal, you want to say, well, you know, communities are simply um, fictions that are created by individuals coming together. Yeah. You know, so there's really not, no um, essential difference between a classroom and a family because they're both made up of individuals. Yeah. You know, whereas um, you know, from from in this very broad, intuitive way, we can sense the distinction, the differences between a family and a classroom, for example, yeah. or between between a church and and a state, between uh, between a chess club and the uh, and a um, um, mm. and and a marriage. You know, we we don't on this very intuitive level we recognize that there's a whole diversity of social formations around us some of which have this very significant institutional character others of which literally are voluntary associations yeah. but, but liberalism tries to reduce everything even institution to mere voluntary associations mm. and that goes yeah. it, it not only it, it goes against reality it goes against our experience of reality because we see all this diversity around us you know, when, I, when I'm looking at, at my office and I look at the things that are on the wall of the books, you know, I'm not just seeing atoms that happen to be, yeah. you know, co coagulated into particular forms. I'm seeing the forms themselves. You know, I'm seeing, you know, a, a book in, in front of me right now. This is the, uh, the InterVarsity <laughs> Press's version of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. I've been uh, looking at that quite a lot, you know, with the, with the Queen's... Uh, um, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, uh, memorial services and, and all of that, you know. It's but I'm not just seeing atoms that happen to be formed into molecules that are that are forming into objects. I'm seeing the things themselves, you yeah. know. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm. There's this, and that's what society is like. You know, we're not just seeing individuals who happen to be uh, coming together from their own free wills, you know, to form whatever it is in association. But we're seeing real communities. Yeah, and I so to your point about the fragmentation, then, um, and and the fact that we are we've sort of exploded and we're all over the place. Um, I, I think about you know being in the business world um, and working with companies and being a business owner and all that. Um, I, I recognize that that fragmentation happens in companies too, and maybe just a practical way that plays out is a worker. You know, let's say you've got a company with a couple hundred people and they got different departments. A worker doesn't realize how their role and their tasks affect the mission of the company. They're disconnected. And I think in the same way, what I'm hearing from you is, is that's the case with our country. And so what we one one of the many solutions we probably need is for someone to communicate how we're interconnected and how those pieces come together and how those help us move forward. And I, I think, think so. the yeah, and, and the other thing I would add to that is I think you're mentioning of the queen um, yeah. passing and her symbolic role as sort of casting the vision. I think that's a type of role that that sort of helps bring people together. What would you it say is. to that? 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it is. It very definitely is. You know, and and it seems like like whenever there is some kind of a royal event, somebody usually in the Toronto Star, maybe the Globe and Mail, you know, will will publish and saying, well, you know, it's time to get rid of the monarchy. It's time to to end the monarchy. You know. Yeah. And I'm I'm not up until now. I wouldn't have said I'm not a sentimental monarchist. You know, <laughs> I was actually born and raised in the United States. But then after this past week. I, I'm kind of wondering, well, maybe I am a sentimental monarchist. I don't know, you know, because I, I was really quite moved by the passing of the Queen, you know, and and um, and and honestly, as they were singing "God Save the Queen" at the committal service, yeah, "God Save the King," rather at the committal service, I'm, I have to get used to the words. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I thought King Charles. It looked like he was he was he was trying very hard not to cry. Yeah, you know, that's what I saw. And how can anybody fail to be affected by that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, Canadians. But, you know, Australians, uh, New Zealanders, uh, uh, Britons alike, you know, yeah. and I think that's a very powerful, um, you know, I, I think when, when an American president dies, you won't see the, the same kind of, um, of um, emotion on the part of Americans. I just yeah. don't think you'll see it. Yeah. 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 So what's, what's the difference? What's, what is America missing then? <laughs> well, <laughs> in, in that particular regard, uh, I know in a recent blog post, you kind of talked about the, yeah. the president and I, I mean, there's no distinction in America between the head of state and the head of government. So I don't know. Exactly. No, that's right. Yeah. And that's something that I've I've been persuaded of for a long time that the lack of the distinction between the head of state and the head of government is uh, I don't know that it's fatal necessarily, but uh, but um, but it, uh, it it means that that when Joe Biden gave his speech about mega Republicans and about the threat of violence to the democracy. He said things that needed to be said, but the mere fact that a, a politician who's uh, embedded in party politics made those statements means that, that he's not going to convince a lot of people, yeah. probably the very people that need to be convinced. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was a speech um, Obama gave during the 2020 uh, election cycle. Yeah. And 80% of it was just really good. But then 20% of it was hyper-partisan. And I felt like, oh, if he just didn't do that part, I think it would have been more captivating for a larger, broader audience. I know. Yeah. And, and part of the thing, you know, Obama in particular, he came to office in 2008 and um, as on the strength of his, his, his kingly qualities. Yeah. Because he and Michelle, they both have the, these regal qualities. The Kennedys have it. You know John yeah. and, and Jackie Kennedy. You know, I, 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 my one of my earliest political memories was the assassination of John Kennedy, and that you know that I was eight years old and 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 I cried. You know, I was upset along with with everybody else, and I it, uh, very vivid memories of this time almost sixty years ago when when, when this happened. You know, and, and 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 but when Obama came to office, you know, on the strength of his kingly abilities, and he was magnificent. You know, he had this 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 deep resonating voice. He was saying all the right things, but then he began to pursue, um, you know, hopelessly divisive policies, yeah. which alienated uh, a lot of a lot of Americans. Yeah. Um, and and that that and you know the lack of 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 a regal figure, I think is 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 really um, uh, that's one of the flaws in the in the American system from my perspective. Yeah, and yeah. and it seems like America, particularly through the pandemic. Um, uh, year and the those that have followed we la there is a leadership void at that level and yeah. um and it's yeah. got consequences so i guess yeah. yeah that kind of to take that one step further into this idea of sovereignty um you know 
we're talking about sort of the symbolic leadership and then the actual leadership in, in these particular issues. But at, at the core level, like where is sovereignty derived from and how how do that how does uh you know different countries with different levels of sovereignty interact with each other and and who's to say that one is sovereign over the other or vice versa how would you reconcile that's that yeah that's right that that has been debated by political philosophers for the last 500 <laughs> years yeah you know, from, from the time of of Hobbes you know who spoke of the sovereign you know the sovereign yeah. is this uh, is this all-powerful figure who has the ability to keep everybody in line and to put an end to this war of all against all you yeah. know and there's there's and 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 the mainstream of western political philosophy for the last 500 years has been to concentrate sovereignty in a in, in a particular person or institution mm. you know so it's either um, it's either parliament you know, parliamentary sovereignty is is the key British um, constitutional principle. You know, or or else popular sovereignty that takes us back to Jean Jacques Rousseau in the 18th century, you know, the French Revolution. It's popular sovereignty. You know, uh, um, Abraham Kuyper, um, the Dutch polymath. He was, um, uh, you know, a Christian. Uh, he was Prime Minister of the Netherlands between 1901 and 1905. Uh, um, somebody whom I admire. Uh, a, a great deal and and who has has been very influential on, on the, the books and the, the various um articles that, are, that i've written uh you know he spoke of something called sphere sovereignty yeah uh you know a very inelegant term which i would not have invented <laughs> myself this is why i use the term chloroformity and yeah. that's probably inelegant too i suppose <laughs> but, um, but uh, um you know the idea that the ultimate sovereignty belongs to god yeah and that and that he delegates his authority to various agents you know in within his creation yeah so individuals but also institutions also you know leadership within communities and institutions and so forth so you know sovereignty is not derived you know the the uh, parental authority is not derived from state sovereignty yeah um, as some people might want to think and that's yeah. going to condition your approach to education as well that takes us mm -hmm. back to our first topic yeah. of discussion but uh, yeah but uh, uh but so how we but 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 I think as as believers, we are willing to recognize this diversity, that this pluriformity, and we're not yeah. threatened by it, mm. as the adherents of ideologies are, you know, because okay. they see chaos. We're not we don't see chaos. We simply see people, you know, people that are made in God's image, who have formed communities, uh, and these communities are pursuing their own interests as they as they understand them, yeah. you know, and um, and. We do need some kind of an institution that will that will coordinate these in some fashion. That's where public justice comes in. This is where government comes in. And uh, but but we're not afraid to uh, to allow the family to be the family, to allow yeah. marriage to be marriage, to allow you know a school to be a school, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I think also what you're implying is as Christians, particularly, um, we can operate within any any system that's going to be out there that's going to shift and move and change in ways that maybe we don't like or maybe that are problematic for us or even harmful but ultimately our our foundation transcends uh the societal system we're in right that's right yes yeah so you know i, I don't think we could ever say that one particular governmental system is the christian uh, or yeah. the biblical governmental system, you know, and and I don't, I can't think of anybody who has actually said that, you know, yeah. um, uh, you know, the uh, most people believed that um, 
you know, well up into the 19th and 20th centuries that the best constitution was a form of mixed constitution that would embody the best of monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. Yeah. You know, while not letting any one of those get the upper hand. Mm -hmm. And in many respects, I think the American founders were operating within that tradition when they wanted to have these three branches of government, none of which could claim sovereignty. Yeah. You know, so it was a kind of shared sovereignty. And I think they were right about that. And that in that respect, they were not establishing a democracy pure and simple, but they were establishing a mixed constitution that would have democratic elements. Yeah. I think that's true of our fathers of confederation a century later here in Canada as well. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for so much for sharing. I guess we can go ahead and wrap uh, start wrapping up. Um, you know, okay. the books, Political Visions and Illusions. You can get it on Amazon. Um you wrote this, you published this in 2019. Is there anything you would add or emphasize in the last three or four years that, um, I know this is the second edition, so you did quite a uh, an update to uh, to the first one, which I, I only read the second, so I don't know how different it is, but I, I, I assume it is. <laughs> it is, yeah, it, there were quite a few changes. Um, I think probably too little time has passed uh, it's only been about three years since the the second edition came out, um, but I, you know, I I think the biggest uh, event that happened um, between then and now, I think, is the pandemic. Yeah. Because that's changed things. You know, the mere fact that you and I are talking this way. Yeah. Um, you know, we probably wouldn't have done that if it had not been for the pandemic. You know, so yeah. so I was in March of 2020. I was scheduled to do a, a synth teaching at um, at a at a Baptist seminary in North Carolina. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, and then at the very, that was in March of, of 2020 at that, you know, just the week before they started imposing these lockdowns because, because of COVID. And so that was canceled, but then all of a sudden, and this was something that I hadn't expected, all of these, um, uh, invitations started pouring in for me. Yeah. And so my, my work took off after, after the pandemic took hold because, you know, I've, mm -hmm. my, the, my book was, was translated into Portuguese. Um, oh wow! And um, yeah, in 2014, and then the okay. and then the the second edition just came out last year, and then it came out in a Spanish language edition just in May uh, of this year. So wow, that's cool. Yeah, so so now I'm I'm getting invitations from uh, from Brazil, mostly from Brazil, but also from Chile, um, a few other places as well. I've had connections in Ukraine as well. Uh, you know, I'm praying for these people because in the middle of this war and everything. But uh, but I think the pandemic has changed so much. You yeah. Know, so so you know, all of a sudden, people in Brazil thought we don't have to pay to fly him <laughs> down here and billet him. You know, we can have him speak to us remote, remotely. Yeah. And um, you know, every month I have several of these these sorts of um, um, speaking engagements or conversations with people such as such as yourself. Yeah. So it's uh, and that's changed. And, you know, mm -hmm. honestly, I think it's too soon to say what the political ramifications will be of this. Yeah. But I'm, 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 in, the, I'm in the process of, of putting together a proposal for a sequel yeah. to Political Visions and Illusions that I, that I am calling um, um, a Citizenship Without Illusions. Mm. Um, so, and I'm, I'm going to deal with what I think is one of the implications of the pandemic. Uh, but even before that, it has more to do with the rise of social media. And I call it the, the virtual illusion, mm. the virtual illusion. And, and, and stay tuned because there's more yeah. coming on that. I've already published an article about that that you can, that okay. you can look up online. But, um, uh, but yeah, I think this is, this is, this is something that, I, that is becoming clear to me um, in recent years. Yeah, that's cool. Is there anything else you wanted to share about the book that we didn't get a chance to cover? 
um, uh, specifically? Yeah, I can't think of anything at the moment. Okay. Um, I have to be careful because I'm constantly on the verge of coughing as I'm oh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> getting rid of the last symptoms of COVID and so forth. But uh, um, okay. Yeah. Well, um, how uh, can if people want to follow you, connect with you on social media? To yeah. how can they how can they find your work, your 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 writings, your social yeah. uh, interactions? I'm very easy to find. I have a, a one of a kind last name, Koizis, um, K O Y Z I S, um, a Z if you're American. But it's a, it's a name that my I think my father my father was born only with a patronymic in the island of Cyprus. And, uh, uh, he didn't have a last name, but when he went to this um, school that was run by Americans, they wanted everybody to have a first, middle, and last name. So yeah. the name Koizis really is a fixed surname, goes back only to 1943. Mm-hmm. So you can find you can find me, but I have a blog called Notes from a Byzantine uh, Notes from a Byzantine Right Calvinist. Uh, where does that name come from? Well, it comes from basically I'm a, I'm a Reformed Christian, but uh, but the Byzantine is a reference to my my uh, my paternal ancestors' um, Greek Orthodox religion. Ah, okay. Uh, yes. Cool. So I'm pretty easy to find that way. Just do a Google search or whatever, and you'll okay. find. Okay. And what social channels are you most active on? Well, on Facebook, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram, on Twitter, um, on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. I'll put links yes. to all those in, in the notes, and people can, great, can great. access that. So, well, thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. I was I was pleased to be here, Jason. Thank you for listening to this episode of Share Life. For additional stories and systems to live better and work smarter, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. We look forward to having you listen in on the next episode of Share Life.